Good morning, church. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the ninth chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. I want to preach to you a message this morning entitled Encounters with Jesus, the Case of the Two Blind Men. And think, speaking of that, have you ever thought what it would be like to be blind? I'll just give you one quick example. My family and I, for summer vacation last summer, we went to Yellowstone and, and the Tetons. And I told folks that the Tetons, literally, it was everywhere you turn was a picture. There was one place that we went called Grand Prismatic Spring, and my oldest boy and I, we took a little extra mile hike up on top. And you could look out over this massive spring. It is every color under the rainbow. I just cannot imagine never having had the privilege of seeing that. I mean, I really don't know if you could imagine anything worse than being blind, but I think we can imagine one thing worse than being blind. You see, it's terrible to be blind, but it's far worse to have eyes and not to see. Helen Keller said, blindness is an unfortunate handicap, but true vision does not require the eyes. In Matthew 9, two blind men have an encounter with Jesus, an encounter that for 2,000 years has been teaching the church that true vision doesn't require this, it requires this, and what it truly means to see. For example, as we're going to Look at this morning. How should we see the impossible problems in our lives? What's true faith-filled prayer look like? What does mind-blowing faith look like? And how should we view obedience to Jesus' commands? As we examine the case of the two blind men this morning, may God grant us true vision. That that doesn't require physical eyes but spiritual ones to see the many beautiful truths evident in this passage this morning. So stand with me to honor the reading of God's Word, Matthew 9. If you do not have a Bible, it's there on the screen, Matthew 9. Matthew writes, as Jesus, starting in verse 27, and as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame through all that district. The word of God to the people of God, and the power of the Spirit of God. Let's pray. Father, I just pray that one more time you will speak through me this morning, Father. Father, we thank you for your precious word that we can hold a copy of it in our hands today and open it up, Father, today to worship you and, Father, to see how we can strengthen our walk with you. And so I pray that you would give us eyes to see the impossible problems in our life, Father, what prayer really looks like, what faith really looks like, and what obedience to your commands looks like. We pray that you would do this in the wonderful, precious name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. And so the first thing I want us to see, there's four things we want to look at here. And the first thing I want us to see is an impossible problem. 
That's the first thing we see in these two blind men's encounter with Jesus is an impossible problem. Well, what problem? Matthew simply tells us that it is physical blindness. We're not told the cause. You know why? Because the cause doesn't really matter. Right? It's not important. It doesn't really matter why they're blind. It's that they are blind. Then as now, there's a myriad of possibilities. But unlike now, I want you to think about what it would have been like then to be blind. It was like a literal death sentence. Consider a couple aspects of it physically. There was no SSI. There was no disability. There was no food stamp program. There was no governmental assistance. You had to subsist solely on the generosity of others. Turn to John 9. You might want to put your finger there because we're going to flip back to there several times this morning. And so they were often reduced to a lifetime of begging. Where's your next meal going to come from? I don't know, depending on how generous people were that day or the day before. John 9, look at verse 8. The neighbors and those who had seen him, man born blind that Jesus healed, before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? You see additionally in Acts 3, 2, the man that was lame, lame was laid at the gate each day to beg. So physically they had to subsist on the generosity of others because they were beggars spiritually. The assumption was that they were terrible sinners cursed by God. Again there in John chapter 9. You've got your finger there. Look at verse 2. If you remember this. As he passed by in verse 1, he saw a man born blind from birth and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born Blind. And so the assumption was he or his parents was a terrible sinner. When we look back at Old Testament and we see that every example of someone becoming blind was an example of them being judged or punished for sin, we can understand where that came from. And so in Genesis 19, if you remember, the Sodomites at Lot's door were struck with blindness. If you remember 2 Kings 6, when the Syrians are attacking God's people, Elisha prayed, God afflict them with blindness, and they were. If you remember, even one of God's own, who was a national hero, a judge, Samson, how did he die? Blind. And so you can understand why they assumed spiritually that these were terrible people. And then emotionally, mentally, imagine the daily anguish. There was no hope for a cure. Let me explain. In Jesus' day, as our own, some things could be cured. And some things were impossible. Like today, you do not want to get a diagnosis of ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, do you? Because there is no cure. And so you don't want certain diagnosis. And that day, you did not want blindness. There was no hope for a cure. In fact, it had never been healed. Go back to John 9, 32, and as you're turning, consider in the Old Testament, had lepers ever been healed? Yes, Naaman had been healed, correct? Had even those who had died from their physical infirmities been brought back to life? Yes. Had a case of blindness ever been cured? Look at what the blind man, this is the blind man speaking in John 9 verse 32. He's rebutting the Pharisees. 
And he says, never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. So, when was the last time that somebody had been healed from blindness? Never. Jesus comes on the scene, as I'll tell you in a little bit, you know how many times he did it? Seven. Seven. They had an impossible problem, but they teach us to see. Because they don't care if their problem is impossible. When God is on the case, there is no impossible problem. So that's the what, the blindness, the who. Look at what it says in verse 27. And as what? Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed who? Him. Imagine the scene. There goes Jesus. These blind men, they're like, we're getting right behind this Jesus and we're going wherever He does. We're going to follow Him. You know why? Because the doctor is in the house. The great physician is in the house. Messiah is on the case. They teach us to see. In fact, blind they saw and the seeing were blind because the Pharisees completely missed it, didn't they? Psalm 121, 1-2. You know those verses? It's in Casting Crown's uh, song. Praise you in this storm. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. What a lesson for us. That these blind guys with an impossible problem, zero hope of cure, no one in the Old Testament since the very foundation of the world had ever been healed of it, and they got enough vision to know where to turn for help. The church doesn't need another seminar. You don't need another self-help book. What you need in your life is Jesus. I'll give you an example. If you come to me and you've got some gastrointestinal problems, and it's just something as simple as I need, you know, you to have a colonoscopy, I know a guy. If you maybe got some problems, I'm like, well, this, this might need a little bit. I got another guy. Well, let me tell you, if you come to me with gastrointestinal problems and they're like, I'm thinking this is very, very, very difficult to figure out. I got a guy too. You know why? Because I know he specializes in the impossible. That is a lesson for us to take, brothers and sisters. Whenever an impossible problem comes into our life, a problem period comes into our life, we know a guy who specializes. And his name is Jesus. Yeah. And so I want to ask you, what seemingly impossible problem one with little to no hope of improving, little less being cured, are you facing? Any of you been facing a, a wayward child? I've known the pain of that. Any of you facing problems in your marriage? Dealing with a family member? Maybe a physical illness, a spiritual matter? The blind men and the psalmist remind us to know where our help comes from. It comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and the earth. And let me tell you, if right now you're like, man, life is just hunky-dory, well, congratulations, but can I tell you, impossible problems are going to come, aren't they, brothers and sisters? In fact, they might be just over the horizon. And when they do, take a lesson from the blind men and know where your help comes from. So how should we see the impossible problems in our lives through the eyes of two blind men. So, that's impossible problem. Next is impassioned plea. Look at verse 27 
In 28, again, as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him. So the second thing we see in their encounter with Jesus is an impassioned plea. It wasn't just enough to know where their help came from and follow Jesus everywhere, just walk around, follow Jesus all around town. What good was that going to do? To know that Jesus could help them, but then just follow Him around. You know what they had to do? They had to cry out, Help us, Jesus! And so I'm going to give you five aspects of this. First is the right manner. The, verse, there, or the word there, crying, is an onomatopoeia. It in the Greek has the sound of a raven screaming or a crow yelling. And as I was looking over my notes this morning, I thought to when I'm in the deer stand, and it's just quiet. Hundreds of acres, it's just quiet. And then all of a sudden, oh! it's a crow, man. He will scare you to death. That's how these guys were hollering out. They weren't going, Hey, Jesus, could you, would you have mercy on us? Have mercy on us, Jesus! You remember there's a separate story in which there's blind men and they're yelling out and what does everybody else do? They turn to them and they say, Would you guys shut up? <laughs> and you know what they did? They got louder. That's what you do when people tell you quit taking your problems to Jesus. You just get louder, amen? Colossians 4.12, it says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. That word struggling in the Greek is the word we get agonized from. That's what prayer should be. It should be emotional. It should be crying out to Jesus. So the right manner, number two, is the right man. It says, and as Jesus passed on from there, they followed him. Think about two cautions with regards to this. When it comes to our prayers, sometimes we could call the wrong person. Let me give you an example. Sometimes a patient calls me and their cardiologist or some other ologist has put them on a medication. I don't even know the name of it. Probably can't even hardly pronounce it. I just mispronounce it and then y'all don't know how to pronounce it so y'all think I pronounced it right. But either way, they put them on some medication they call me. Doctor, I'm having all these problems and I'm like, you're calling the wrong person. I don't really even know this medication. You need to call what? The right person. Does that make sense? Do you know we do the same thing spiritually? We have some issue and we go, what do you, what? I'll, I'll come and I'll say, Vicki. I'll say, babe, what do you think about this? Or you go to your BFF. And I'm not saying you shouldn't go to your pastor, but we'll go to our pastor. I wonder how many of those times in our life have we taken it to Jesus first and foremost? Because a lot of times we're calling the wrong person, aren't we? The second problem is we call nobody. I got folks come in and they tell me something that happened a month ago. Like, you know, I had a guy, classic case. I literally, you know, I gave you plenty of time. Hey, brother, any other concerns you got? No, no, no. Fifteen minutes later, you know, I've got my hand on the doorknob and I'm going to walk out. He says, oh, by the way, I forgot to tell you, a month ago I went blind in my eye. I'm like, that's not an oh, by the way. I mean, you should have told me that. Why didn't you call somebody when you went blind? And we do the same thing. We have a problem, you know what we do? We don't even call Jesus. Think about sometimes why we don't and why they wouldn't have. One is pride. Don't we do that? Hey, I got this, Jesus. I got this. 
Then when we really messed it up and we broke it all up, now we go, man, Jesus, can you fix this? Two is people. Think about these two blind guys. What if they'd have said, man, what are other folks going to think? Pharisees would have come up and said, oh, y'all just a bunch of Jesus freaks. Y'all a bunch of nut jobs. Number three is prejudice. Jesus is, sometimes we approach our problems like this. Jesus has just got bigger fish to fry, so I'm not going to bother him with it. If it concerns you, it concerns Jesus. Amen? And so, think about these guys. They could have said, somebody could have said, y'all think Jesus is going to help y'all? So sin, do you see? Prayer is calling somebody, not just anybody. Ephesians 6.18 tells us to pray always in the Spirit and to the Lord. Call the right man. So right manner, right man. Third is right motive. Look at what they say. Have mercy on us, son of David. Now do you think these guys were saying this? Jesus, just feel sorry for us. What is mercy? Is it just an emotion? Or is it saying, Jesus, we need you to come help us? It's the second, isn't it? Let me give you some other examples. Look at Matthew 15, 22. Y'all remember the Canaanite woman? And her daughter was oppressed by a demon. It says, Behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. You think she was saying, Jesus, could you just feel sorry for me? My daughter is oppressed by a demon. She's saying, Jesus, come do something about it, isn't she? And so one other example, Matthew 17, 15. When they came to the crowd, a man came up to him, Jesus, and kneeling before him, said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and suffers terribly. He often falls into the fire and often into the water. You think he was saying, Jesus, could you just feel sorry for my boy? He has seizures and they're so terrible it throws him into the fire. You think he's saying, just feel sorry for him? No, he's saying, Lord, please heal him. Do something about it. One pastor said there may be more to this plea than a cure for blindness. They might actually have been confessing sin. And so they weren't just coming for the physical. They were coming because ultimately what they wanted was Lord have mercy on us body and soul. Heal us physically but more importantly heal us spiritually. And they weren't going to let pride, people, prejudice, nothing get in the way. I love what Roy Rogers one time said about our prayers. He said, you know what the problem is with our prayers? We use them as a means of last resort. And so sin do you see? Do you take your concerns to Jesus from the right motive? James 4, 3 says, you ask and you don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So the right manner, the right man, the right motive, the right mind is number four. They call out son of David. You know what's worse than being blind? Having eyes and not seeing. We already said that. These guys' use of the term son of David is a sign of their faith. In fact, they were the first people in Scripture that we can find chronologically that used it. The Pharisees couldn't even see 
that the man before him was the Messiah. And they knew that the Messiah, that part of his ministry would be mercy. It was what Isaiah had predicted. In Isaiah 35, he said that the blind will see, the lame will leap, the deaf will hear. And if you remember, when Jesus gave his inaugural sermon, he took the, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah in Luke 4, and he reads that passage, and he sits down and he says, Today this has been fulfilled in your ears. And you remember when John the Baptist was struggling? And he sends his disciples and he says, Jesus, are you really the Messiah? Or do we need to look for somebody else? What did Jesus tell them? And it says in Luke, in that hour, he healed many people. And then he turned to them and he said, you go back and you tell John what you're seeing. That the blind are getting their sight and the lame are leaping. And so these guys believed it. Miraculously, even though they couldn't see. And so prayer is believing God is able. I love Ephesians 3.20. It says, Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. I don't think sometimes we even have a clue the power Jesus can have through prayer in our life. Amen? So the right man... Are the right manner, the right man, the right motive, the right mind, and finally the right movement. Look at verse 28. You might have missed this if you really weren't paying attention. So they call out, they scream out, Have mercy on us, son of David. What does Jesus do? He keeps walking. Because look at what it says. Does he turn around to them and say, What do you guys want? It says, When he entered the house... And look what's next. So Jesus seemingly turns a deaf ear. I mean, do you think Jesus really couldn't hear them? Not when they're screaming at the top of their lungs. And so Jesus just keeps walking. In fact, He keeps walking and He goes right into the house and these guys all but literally following to the restroom. They're like, Jesus, we're parking it right here. See, that's the problem with a lot of us where we get off track in our prayers. We stop short. You've got to keep on knocking. Turn to Luke 18. And I'm going to tell you, this sometimes is Jesus' M.O. And if you don't believe me that this is Jesus' M.O., I'll go back and read the story of the Canaanite woman. In verse 23, after she cries out, it says, But he, Jesus did not answer her a word. And did she say, well, that's it. Jesus said no. She kept on. You see, brothers and sisters, think about with regards to our prayer. Sometimes when we pray something, Jesus says no. And that's just it. That's answered no. And we have to line up our will with His will. That's difficult, isn't it? Sometimes He says yes. And that's what we like when He says yes. In that time and in that way. That's the way we like it. And that's the way we want it, isn't it? Sometimes he says yes, and I'll do it in that time, but I'm going to do it in a different way. I mean, if I have cancer, I don't really care how Jesus heals me, amen, as long as he doesn't, he gets the glory, right? The problem where we struggle is this, where he says yes, and I'll do it in that way, but I'm not going to do it in that time. Look at Luke 18. 
Verse 1, and he told them a parable. Why? To the effect that they ought what? Always to pray and not lose heart. And in verse 8 he says, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Will he find that kind of praying? So what's true faith-filled prayer look like? See it through the eyes of two blind men. Alright, number three is impregnable peace teeth. I had to kind of talk about Understand, uh, I had to kind of work with my Greek here to get my alliteration to work out. That's the word for faith in Greek. It's the word there, believe, that Jesus uses. Do you believe? Do you peace tease this? And so look at some aspects of these guys' faith. We'll try to go through this quickly for time's sake. But Jesus says, do you believe? Look first at the person. What did they say? Jesus, son of David, Lord, they had a hundred bazillion percent faith Jesus could get her done. You think they had full theological understanding of this term son of David that they're using? No. What it's an expression of is their faith. Matthew starts out his gospel with this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ the son of David. And guess what? Somebody has figured out that that is Jesus, that he really is the son of David. And guess who it is? It's the blind guys. The Pharisees haven't even figured it out. Faith is not nebulous, right? I don't just say, well, I have faith. It's always in something or in someone. And so is your faith unshakable because it's rooted in the person of Jesus Christ? Next is the prodigious. Do you believe I am able. If I'm not mistaken, if you uh, look at a harmony of the Gospels and chronologically how things flow, these are the first blind guys to receive sight. Remember I said there were seven, but these are the first. Literally, they are John 9, 32. It had never been done in the history of the world. Lepers had been healed. The dead had been raised. Their faith is off the chain because just like Mary in Luke 1.37, they said nothing is impossible with God. That was the kind of faith they had. And so do you have unshakable faith? Because it's rooted in the power of Christ. Next is the peculiarity. Look at what it says. Jesus passed on and they followed. Look back at 9.26. Why do you think they followed? Because Jairus' daughter had been sick and raised from the dead. There was a woman with an issue of blood who had, it literally says in the gospel she had spent every red penny she had going to doctors trying to get healed for 12 years and no one had been able to crack the case. But Jesus got her done. And they heard about it. Do you think they could see it with their own eyes? All they heard was that Jesus did it, but you know what they did? They believed it right here. And so, it reminds me of 2 Corinthians 5, 7. How do we walk? It ain't by this. We walk by faith, not by sight. And so, do you have peculiar faith because it walks by, not by sight, but by faith? Next is the persistence. They said, Jesus, have mercy. He just kept walking. He goes into the house. He turns to them. Do you believe that I'm able to do this? They said, yes, Lord. That word in the Greek basically means this. They said and 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 they said, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, Lord. 
It was persistent. There's a song, Trading My Sorrows, I thought of. We say, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, yes, Lord. Do you believe that God can raise up a new generation of faithful pastors and Christians even in the midst of what's going on in America? We say, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, yes, Lord. It starts here with our belief. Remember what I said, Luke 18. If you read that parable, this judge did not want to give this widow justice. But you know why he finally did? Because she kept coming. And in the Greek it says, she's literally giving me a black eye. She's constantly coming and she is wearing me out. I have jokingly said sometimes the way our faith needs to work and our prayers need to work, we literally need to be so annoying to God, He says, finally child, I'm going to answer your prayer. I see your faith. I'm going to do it. So you calm down. Next is the percentage. Two blind men, I said. Blind, they saw and seeing... The Pharisees were blind. In Matthew 12, 24, Jesus has a, a healing. And they say, oh, it's by Beelzebub. It's by, it's by the devil that He does this. And then when He heals the man blind in John 9, it's, what did they say? Well, this man isn't of God because he doesn't keep the Sabbath. See, they were completely sin and they were blind as bats. And the men in the room that were blind as bats could see. Why? Because of faith. You remember in Matthew 16, 15, just before Peter has his confession of faith of Jesus, and Jesus is saying, who do the people out there say that I am? And they're saying this, and they're saying that. And then he turns and he says a question that is so poignant to me and you, brothers and sisters. He says, but who do you? It does not matter what my wife thinks. It does not matter what you think. It matters, what do I say about Jesus? What does Buffy cook? As much as I want my son to have my faith and my trust in Jesus, he has to have it himself. And even if the majority of the world says, we're not going to believe that Bible, it is a bunch of fairy tales, and we're not going to believe that truth about Jesus, we're going to suppress it as it says in Romans 1. You know what? I don't care if there's two people left. I'm going to be one of the last two. Amen. And then the persuasion. Do you believe I'm able to do this? I love what E. Stanley Jones said. He said, if you don't make up your mind, your unmind made will unmake you. You remember in James 1? He says, ask. But when you ask, don't doubt. Because if you doubt, you're like a, a wave just tossed back. To and fro. And what does he say? The, you're a double-minded man. Unstable in all your ways. Brothers and sisters, when, with our faith, when we say, I know Jesus can do... We're double-minded. We're unstable. We have to be persuaded that He is able. And let me give you a little word of wisdom. If you're finding yourself struggling with this, this is what you do. You go to Mark 9 and you read the story of the father who says, yes, Lord, I believe you can do this, but help my unbelief. Amen. That's the cry we need to have sometimes. I believe, but you've got to help my unbelief. 
Next is the paucity. If you look at this carefully, these guys speak nine words. Take out their titles for Jesus and you're down to five. If you really get down to the nitty gritty, you know what it is? It's one word. And you know what it is? Do you believe I'm able to do this? Yes. And it reminds us, brothers and sisters, do we need faith the size of this room? Faith the size of a mustard seed will get her done. Amen. Next is the professing. They said, yes, Lord. They said it with their mouth. The centurion, the leper, the ruler, the woman with the issue of blood, all of them explicitly confessed their faith. You remember when Jesus comes to the disciples and says, who do the people say that I am? And what does Peter do? He says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he says, upon that rock I will build my church. Not like the Catholics think that they're building it up, we're building it on Peter. It's built on the profession that Jesus is the Christ. Amen? That's the true profession. And then finally is the product. Look at what Jesus says to them. First, you know what I love? I love that Jesus touched their eyes. You see, as a physician, I understand the importance of touch. That may not be politically correct in today's age, but a lot of times I hug my patients after the visit. When I'm examining them, I don't just take my stethoscope and just put it up there so only the stethoscope touches them. I lay my hand on the shoulder. You know why? Because physical touch is extremely important. And I love that Jesus touched their eyes. And what does He say? Why is He healing them? According to your faith. Can you imagine when they opened their eyes? You think they stayed in that house for very long? They probably took off running down the street looking at everything they had been missing. It was Jesus' good pleasure to heal them and it's His good pleasure when He sees our faith. I don't know about you, but I'm breathless looking at these guys' faith. What mind-blowing faith looks like is through the eyes of two blind men. The final thing is an improper proclamation. We'll go through this quickly. Look first at Jesus' demand. Jesus sternly warned them, see no one knows about it. That word sternly warned in the Greek is an extremely strong word. It means to snort like an angry horse. So sometimes Jesus said, go and tell. and Sometimes He told people, go and be quiet, right? Why was He so dead set on them going and being quiet. Because messianic expectations were at a feverish pitch, if you remember why. They wanted the Messiah to what? Come along and throw Rome out with the bathwater, right? And you remember when Jesus fed the 5,000? It says that then they came to make Him their King. So it was potentially dangerous for Jesus. And then second... He was on a divine timetable and it would potentially derail it. You remember when he was at the, the feast, the wedding uh, feast at Cana? And his mother came to him, said they're running out of wine, and he said, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour is not yet come. And so that's why he told them that. So they listened to him, didn't they? Hmm. Unfortunately not. Look at verse 31. But they went away and spread his fame through all that district. 
One uh, translation says they were hardly out the door before they started blabbing it to everyone they met. Give you a couple of ideas about this. First off, you think it would have been hard to notice that these guys who used to be blind could now see everything, right? So it's just been natural for people to say, hey, who healed you? But what their attitude should have been when Jesus said, go and be quiet, they should have said, hey, we were sworn to secrecy. It's not a lie, is it? It's what they were told. Number two, we want to give them a pass. I mean, as I was thinking about this, I was thinking, you know, sometimes in my life, even if I'm so overjoyed with what Jesus has done in my life, even if God came and said, you need to be quiet about it, boy, I would disobey Him almost because I'm so overjoyed with what Jesus has done in my life. Amen? And so I think we kind of want to give these guys a pass. But unfortunately, Jesus' commands are not a buffet. When we go to the buffet for lunch, you're going to go, well, I don't like turnip greens, so I ain't going to pick them. Well, I like biscuits and I like ham, but I'm not having any of that. I don't like apple pie. That is not how God's commands work. Amen? We don't get to pick and choose. Third is, Matthew might have intended a subtle rebuke because as soon as they could see, guess what they did? They stopped living by faith. Maybe Matthew's saying it's better to be blind and obedient than physically see and disobey. I say it when people say, aren't you afraid to go to Africa? You know what I've told them? I'd just as soon die in Uganda being obedient to my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ as alive sitting on my couch at home. And then four, Jesus ain't looking for fans. He's looking for followers. If you remember in John 6, He feeds the 5,000. Everybody wants to make him king right away. The next day, they're falling all over themselves to find Jesus because they want some more catfish po'boys. And what's Jesus' response? He breaks out, as Kyle Alvin says, the drink my blood and eat my flesh sermon. He says, unless you do that, you have no part of me. And you know what it says there at the end of that chapter? And many of his disciples turned and no longer walked with him. Because Jesus ain't looking for fans, He's looking for followers, amen? The final thing is, we are to go spread Jesus' name everywhere, amen? Mark 16, 15 says, go through the whole creation and preach the gospel. Heaven forbid we're ever silent about Jesus, amen? We ought to be so loud about Jesus, we've got the devil sucking on a bottle of Malana in the back of hell saying, I wish that old boy would shut his mouth. He's giving me heartburn. He's taking my captives. I love what Brother Stan told me last Sunday after the message. He said, sometimes in the invitation, he tells folks, some of y'all need to come up here and let Jesus in, and some of y'all need to come up here and let Jesus out. I thought, ooh, man, that'll preach. There's a lot of Christians that need to let Jesus out. Amen. In closing, got an eye chart there. Why is that there? My wife and I were watching a show the other night. There was a new doctor in town. She's on the phone. She's not really paying attention. This man comes in. And he says, I need a DLT physical. I need you to say I can pass the eye exam. And he shows her the paperwork. And she's on the phone. She's not paying attention. And he puts this over here. And he starts going to EFP, TOZ. And he goes TOZ, LPED. And she just signs off on it. Gives it to him. He runs out the door. The next thing you see is the lady coming and saying, Why did you sign off on that man's eye exam? 
Well, he could see thy chart. No, he's been legally blind for years. He had it memorized. The problem was he had the ability to see up here, but he didn't really have the ability to see here, which is really here. There's a lot of Christians that got the eye chart memorized. They got head knowledge about what they should do when it comes to problems. They got head knowledge about prayer. They got head knowledge about faith. They got head knowledge about obedience to Jesus' commands. But seeing, they don't really see because it hasn't translated, as Dr. Rogers said, the 18 inches to their heart. So 2,000 years later, these two blind men's encounter with Jesus still teaches us a blind person who sees is far better than a seeing person who is blind. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you so much for this day. Father, I thank you so much for the opportunity you have given us to gather in your house, Father. To worship you, Father, just through the fellowship that we have had with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. Father, the fellowship with you through the giving of our offerings and tithes. Father, through the songs that we have sang that have stirred our heart. And Father, like honey to our soul, minister to us this morning. And we thank you so much for your Holy Spirit that has revealed the truth to us from your word today. And so I pray, Father, that we would take the case of these two blind men. And going out, we would truly see, maybe some of us, for the first time in our life. And when it comes to impossible problems, Father, we would know where our help comes from. Father, that we would really know what it means to pray. Father, that we would leave out here and we would have unshakable faith. And Father, even if we don't like it, we would be obedient to your commands. As we come to this time of invitation, I pray that you would bless it, pour your Holy Spirit afresh upon this place, that decisions can be made today for the kingdom. For it's in Jesus' wonderful and precious name I pray. Amen. As far as the invitation, again, if you're saved, maybe you need to come down this morning and you just want me to pray with you about a problem that seems impossible in your life. You just need to lay it on the altar and turn it over to the Lord. Or maybe you want to come and me pray with you about deepening your prayer life or increasing your faith or something that you know you've been disobedient and the Lord's calling you to be obedient to. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, can I tell you, you're not physically blind, but you're spiritually blind. Because Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, that the little G-O-D of this world has blinded your eyes to the glorious truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I pray today what God has done more than anything is like He did with Paul, who's touched you and the scales have fallen off of your eyes and for the first time you've seen the truth of who Jesus really is. And you would come and you would cry out to Him for salvation this morning. And stand as we sing, church.